welcome to the Amor Mundi podcast from the Hannah Arendt Center for Politics and Humanities at Bard College. Amor Mundi means love of the world. We are here to explore ways of thinking together and loving the world in the spirit of Hannah Arendt. This is episode nine, The Rule of Nobody. It features the Arendt Center's founder and director, Roger Berkowitz, in a Zoom conversation with Philip K. Howard, lawyer and activist. Howard has written five books, including The Death of Common Sense and The Rule of Nobody, a reference to Hannah Arendt's description of bureaucratic rule. He also started Common Good, a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization which advocates simplifying government. Welcome. My name is Roger Berkowitz. I'm the founder and academic director here at the Hannah Arendt Center, and I'm thrilled to be speaking today with Philip K. Howard. Philip Howard has written five books. He's a lawyer. He's been an activist and public servant. His first book was The Death of Common Sense. He's also written a book, Try Common Sense. And the book that first brought Philip to my attention was his book, The Rule of Nobody which is a, a quotation from Hannah Arendt's essay on violence. Although the rule of nobody is a phrase she uses many times to describe what she sees as the dangers and even evils of bureaucratic rule. And so we're gonna be talking about common sense and bureaucracy and freedom and our current predicaments. Welcome, Philip, how are you? Nice to be with you, Roger. Great, so we're all dealing with the coronavirus shelter-in-place orders in different ways. Can you just let us know where you are and, and how you've been spending your time in isolation? <laughs> well, uh, my family or my wife and I decamped to uh, a place we have on the North Shore of Long Island. And, and one of our daughters who's a journalist and her family had moved into one of the cottages we have here. So we've been pretty isolated, but it's nice to be able to see see at least one of our children and, and her children. And I've basically been doing what I do anyway, which is write, reading and writing. And I'm trying to organize a, uh, a campaign to remake the governing philosophy of the United States, which we hope to launch whenever the clouds clear from this crisis. So when you say the governing philosophy of the United States and to remake it, let's start at the beginning. What is the governing philosophy of the United States, in your opinion? Well, I'm sorry, I, that was imprecise. I should have said operating philosophy. I think the governing philosophy is manifested in the Constitution is just fine. The operating philosophy, sort of how, how we run schools and healthcare institutions, or in the case of coronavirus, how we um, didn't let public health officials in Seattle act immediately, but made them sit on their hands for a month while they waited for approvals from Washington is the problem that we've created the system of government that's designed to be better than people and with a rule for everything and detailed procedures before you can act. And it just doesn't work. It was a, and with tragic consequences in the case of COVID-19. Can you say a little bit more specifically about the bureaucratic snafus that have impacted the response to the coronavirus? Uh, yes, it's really interesting. It proves, there's so many levels of proof of the dysfunction of the current system. So when the first, uh, or what they think is the first victim of coronavirus came to Seattle, it happened that, uh, that there was a flu study going on by some doctors doing research, and they wanted to test all the subjects 
for the coronavirus. But they had already collected the swabs and such, but they weren't allowed to for three legal reasons. First, uh, they needed to get the test approved by the Centers for Disease Control, which was not forthcoming for weeks. Then they had to get the lab they were using approved by the Medicare agency. That, too, took weeks. I mean, why why they need to get approved? The lab was already approved to do this other test. And these were responsible public health officials. And third, they needed to get the approval of all the people they collected swabs from under U.S. privacy regulations. Even though the people had already agreed to be part of a study for flu, why would they object to finding out if they had coronavirus or not? And so there's the layers of legal requirements that prevented the people from acting. And had they acted, uh, it's possible that we could have actually contained the virus. It seems like common sense that if you have a flu study and you hear about the coronavirus, you would just test for that. I mean, why didn't the people just do it? Is there, were there actual legal uh, punishments involved? And, and in the end, didn't the people in Seattle just go ahead and do this without federal approval or not? Yes. Eventually, uh, I, I forget how many weeks went by, three or four weeks went by, and they just decided to go ahead and do it. That's exactly what happened. But there are many other examples of, uh, of tests of hospitals and medical systems not allowed to, to use their own tests or buy tests from overseas until the Centers for Disease Control approved it. There are probably a dozen different important steps that might have been taken that were delayed by a month or more by a regulatory structure that requires that every decision pass through the eye of the Washington needle before it can be made. And it, it resulted in, you know, the virus basically, it's a very virulent virus spreading throughout the country. And so now we have the entire economy like that. So it just strikes me that, you, you know, you said earlier the government philosophy, and then you revised it and said not government, but operating philosophy. I'm not actually sure if the government philosophy was wrong, but let's, let's try and press on that for a second. If we had to articulate that philosophy. One way is you've, you've often articulated it negatively in two of your titles um, against common sense and try common sense. Why is our government operation or government philosophy against common sense? Or can we put it in positive terms? What is it trying to accomplish that um, requires us from rejecting common sense? The operating philosophy of this country today, which um we basically devised as a result of the traumas of the 1960s is one in which we try to have detailed prescriptive rules that not only tell people what goals they have to meet, you know, have a safe workplace or whatever, but tell them exactly how to do it with often thousand page rule books. And not everything can have a rule. And so for things that can't have a rule, the idea is to have multiple procedures And the goal of both of those protections is to avoid mistakes. If you have all these procedures, if you have all these rules, the idea is you'll avoid the mistakes. And the flaw in the system is that it's basically a form of central planning. It doesn't account for the many complexities of life. And sometimes you need to act right away. Many public choices involve trade-offs that can't readily be made you know, in advance, you have to be there in the circumstances to, to look at the needs of different people. You're teaching your classroom. 
one child needs this, the other child needs something else. Well, the teacher has to be able to balance those circumstances. There's disruption in the classroom. Who is it that's disrupting the classroom? Someone has to make a choice. You can't stop everything and go to a due process hearing to avoid the unfairness to to one child. It's you have to keep moving. Yeah, I think you know you're you're absolutely right. And there were probably two intellectuals in the 20th century who uh, really uh, articulated the dangers of the kind of anti-common sense government that you're talking about. One was uh, Friedrich Hayek and the other was Hannah Arendt. And while those two intellectuals are not often or not always seen as having the same views, and there's many places in which they clearly don't, one place that they do is they both are big proponents of common sense. I mean, Hannah Arendt's, much of her work is a defense of common sense and a fear that we are losing common sense over and against the, well, part of it is the rule of bureaucracy, but I think deeper than that for her is the rule of an expert elite. And it's, right. and it's that expert elite that, as you said, doesn't want to get it wrong. They think they have answers. They think there are right ways to address any given situation. And they increasingly don't trust responses of people who are not experts in their same right. way. Right. But, but where we are today in this country is one level worse than even Anna Arendt contemplated. It's bad enough to have an expert tell you what to do who's not there. What's worse is to have an expert who's dead tell you what to do. So you have rules written in 1980, let's say, dictating choices in 2020. And the rule books just get thicker and thicker. I'll give an example. New York Times had this feature a couple of years ago about the regulation of an apple orchard in upstate New York. And um, it turned out that this family-owned apple orchard uh, was subject to about 5,000 rules, including um, from 17 different regulatory programs. And the family that owned it tried to keep it all straight. They had 13 clipboards in their office and such. You know, it's just well beyond human capacity to understand it. And the granularity of the rules is really astonishing. So, for example, one of the rules requires that after you pick the apples and they're in the cart being taken to the barn to be washed, which takes a few minutes, you had to cover the apple cart with a cloth to protect the apples against bird droppings. <laughs> now, those apples have been growing on the tree for five months. You know, the government's done nothing to protect them against bird droppings. It's just an absurd rule. You know, it's just a rule that somebody made up probably decades ago, and it's one of the 5,000 rules. And, and the evil of that is not that it's sort of stupid and trivial. It's that the accumulation of those rules actually diverts people from focusing on more important goals, including more important public goals, like keeping the apples clean, you know, or washing them better or something. And so there have been studies of this, which is that humans have a cognitive limitations about how much they can, how many external factors they can keep in mind. And we've created a system that it's not just experts telling us what to do, it's hundreds of experts telling us what to do in the form of these rule books. So, yeah, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. This rule seems crazy. And yet the reason for the rules 
is because there are apple farmers who cheat, who, you know, put bad apples, so to speak, into the food supply, uh, cut costs. And so, you know, I hear you saying use common sense. uh, And yet there's no doubt that one of the reasons we have all these rules is because over the years, using common sense hasn't worked so well. Just, you know, to give you one example, right? One place that I've studied a little bit a while ago that is clearly a place in which we've gone over the top in rules is criminal sentencing guidelines, telling judges how much to sentence uh, criminals for crimes they've done. And this used to be a, a matter of judicial discretion, which we could call a kind of educated common sense. And yet now uh, we have thousand pages of rules for each crime about how, to, how long someone should be in, in jail. And this came about because on the left, people were worried about judges in the South being racist and uh, assigning larger penalties to African-Americans than to whites. Whereas people on the right were worried about judges uh, who were too liberal uh, letting people off too leniently. And so you had this bipartisan desire to create standards in judging. Right, so really good example. Um, I think it's really useful to talk about examples as well. The problem with sentencing before the sentencing guidelines is that the judges had no standards whatsoever. They just made it up. So you went to an easy sentencing judge who would typically give a year for a certain crime. And in the courthouse next door, you go to a hard sentencing judge who'd give 10 years for the same crime. So that seemed really unfair. So Marvin Frankel, who was a former judge, came up with this idea of the sentencing guidelines. And the flaw with them is that they were not guidelines is that they were essentially mandates. And so they tried to solve the problem once and for all with a kind of a software program. For this is, if you do the following things, you have this many drugs, this much, you'll be sentenced to this much. And you do a kind of a mathematical calculation. There are many problems with that, the problems of not using judgment in general. But for example, somebody caught with one dose of a drug that happened to be in a sugar cube versus something that weighed much less, but was cocaine in an envelope. And the person with the one dose of LSD would get sentenced to five years. And the person with 30 doses of cocaine would get six months because of the weight, because there was a weight characteristic for the drug. It was really, it's unbelievably unfair. And then what happened is that the prosecutors realized that they could basically extort defendants into plea bargains by manipulating the indictment in such a way that it maximized the potential sentence. They would organize the indictment so you'd end up with life in prison for some fairly mild crime. And so then what are you going to do? You're going to plea bargain for five years or go to life in prison. You plea bargain for five years. So it became a game of extortion by the prosecutor. So the way they have tried to fix that now is that they have made them into guidelines, called sort of guided discretion, so that there are general guidelines, but the judges are free to depart from the guidelines. And that's what they should have been from the beginning. And so the choice here is not going to the apple orchard. The choice is not whether you want clean apples or not. You all want clean apples. The choice is whether you have a regulatory program that says 
you must have clean apples. This is the goal. And in general, that will require the following things. You know, it meets a certain standard, you wash them and whatever. That's one way of regulating. And then you inspect orchards to make sure you do spot checks that they're selling clean apples. That's an effective regulatory regime. If you give the apple orchard 5,000 rules, many of which are trivial, uh, studies will show that they actually either have little effect or are counterproductive because people spending all their time complying, you know, go down this 5,000 uh, list checklist or whatever, instead of focusing on whatever the regulatory goal is. It seems that part of the problem is that judges have college degrees and law degrees and are either appointed or elected, and yet still we barely trust them. Whereas when you look at apple orchard owners or restaurant owners, we just don't trust people. Uh, you know, for, for a whole host of reasons. It's a very, you know, we're not Sweden. We're not a homogenous society. People have different standards. People have different goals. There's also a kind of love for someone like President Trump who likes to cut corners and run businesses in ways that, that, that abuse the rules. Right. And so there's a, there's a feeling amongst many people that the only way to protect ourselves is a kind of regulatory bureaucracy. Yes, but, but, but again, let me make this distinction. We're not talking about doing away with regulation. We're talking about making regulation more effective. So the point here is not that we need to deregulate. That's a completely false narrative, in my view. We need to re-regulate to make it effective, to make it so that the people in Seattle can use human judgment. I'll give another example. Australia in the 1980s had terrible nursing homes. Uh, they had a thousand-page rule book telling everybody how to run their nursing homes, which is how they run them in this country. Someone had the bright idea of throwing away the rule book in Australia, the thousand-page rule book, and replacing it with 31 general principles. Have a home-like setting. Respect the dignity of the residents. Things like that. Goal-oriented. The experts scoffed. They said, these nursing home operators are going to get away with murder. So they went in a year later to study the nursing homes. Turns out that nursing homes had dramatically improved in quality. Dramatically. They were like night and day. They'd been miserable before. Now most of them were good. And they tried to study why. And the why was that people who worked in the nursing homes now came to the nursing homes. They understood what the goals were, because they could internalize those kinds of principles, have a home-like setting. And they focused on what the residents needed, whereas before they were focused on complying with this 1,000-point checklist. So then the experts went to the U.S. and they studied nursing homes in Illinois, where they had the 1,000-point checklist, which were miserable. And, and the way they were run is by this despotic regime of make sure the paperwork is in order, make sure this is there, make sure they're all focused, you know, obsessed with compliance. It's like teachers and metrics and, you know, like the testing metrics and things. The metric becomes the message, if, if you will. And um, so what's important is to understand, and it's different for environmental regulation where you need specific rules than it is for say, running a nursing home or an apple orchard where ultimately the proof is in the pudding. And so what you want is a regulatory system that is effective. And 
in many areas of human life, the most effective regulatory regimes are those that acknowledge the need for human agency to make it work. You know, this is such an important point of Hannah Arendt, you know, which is you need and and you need that in authority. You know, she talks so much about authority. Authority is the hub. It's like the traffic cop in a society. And you need the authority person to be able to make judgments of right and wrong in order for us to be free to act on our own sense of right and wrong. So what we're talking about is government agency or public, I mean, sorry, human agency that applies not only to you and me, citizens in society, but also applies to regulators. Yeah. I mean, Hannah Arendt, as you said, worried about bureaucracy, right? Um, She called it the form of government in which everybody is deprived of political freedom of the power to act. And part of that is that as we put more and more, as the country gets bigger and bigger, uh, you need more uh, administrators to administrate it. And these administrators are often anonymous. They're often far away, as you rightly said. And they don't have responsibility, partly because, as you said, there are 17 different agencies regulating any one given thing. And if you come to one and say, why is this happening? They say, oh, go to the other one. And we've all, I think anyone who has lived in the world has experienced that. And so she calls it the rule of nobody, where all are equally powerless and we have a tyranny without a tyrant. Right. Um, for Arendt, there's a, it's very hard to get out of this rule of bureaucracy because it comes from, as you said, a, a loss of authority, which she thinks is very hard to recapture. And it even comes, she thinks, from the idea of progress. If you believe in progress, you believe in growth, you believe in bigness, you're going to have to put more and more anonymous administrators at the top to allow things to grow. You've been working on this for decades, as you rightly said. You obviously have hit resistance. You know, what do people say when you say <laughs> this, this hits, this is... This goes against all common sense. My guess is that people say, well, you're right, but we don't like common sense. Or what do they say? I'm just wondering what people say. Yeah, I think there there are several objections. Um, First of all, you know, most really smart management theorists, like Peter Drucker, for example, or others, would say that nothing works, especially government, unless you give full scope to human responsibility. It doesn't mean that people do whatever they want. It means that they have the responsibility to apply the principles fairly, like the U.S. Constitution forbids unreasonable searches and seizures. It's just four words. Well, those words are given meaning because judges and prosecutors and others have given them meaning over the years. And we all go to bed without fear, generally, that the police are going to barge in and haul us off to jail for no reason. You know, it's just four words in a constitution. Law doesn't require, law is not a software program. It's a human institution where right and wrong always depend on the circumstances for the reasons stated by Aristotle and for the reasons argued by Arendt. And so where do people push back? So there's the people who agree with me that bureaucracy is too dense, we have too much red tape, They say, they think that you can go in and just sort of 
clean it out, that it's just a matter of degree. So that Cass Sunstein is someone who I admire. He's a Harvard Law professor who writes about this. He was head of reg reform under Obama. Recently had a column in Bloomberg in which he said we need to go in and clean out what he called the sludge. You know, too many forms, too much red tape, this and that. And so, you know, at one level, I agree with that. But at another level, I think he's missing the point, which is that the reason all that sludge exists is because we decided after the 1960s to try to create a government better than people that not only would we require workplaces to be safe, which I'm all for, and to go and inspect them and make sure they're safe, but we would tell people exactly how to make them safe with 4,000 rules so that there's a material safety data sheet that tells you what happens if you drink too much Joy dishwashing liquid. You know, and that's one of a 1,000 sheets you have to have in a factory, along with the one that deals with arsenic. Now. That's really a bad way of governing. You should have the one on arsenic and not the one on joint dishwashing liquid. You know, you've got to use your judgment for this stuff. And, you know, law used to be written more like the Constitution. The Interstate Highway Act in 1956 was 29 pages long. Ten years later, we'd written, we'd built 21,000 miles of road because people took responsibility to use the money and build the roads. The last highway bill was 500 pages long. It was implemented by 10,000 pages of regulation. And it would take 10 years just to get a permit. So we just don't let humans make decisions. And so I think where Cass hasn't gone far enough is he doesn't understand that there's a foundational flaw in the structure of modern government, which is that it, it is designed to distrust any judgment by anyone at any level whether it's the teacher running the classroom or the public health official in Seattle. And it doesn't work. I think you're right, Philip. And that's why I think your original formulation that you backtracked against, which is that this is about a philosophy of government as opposed to an operations, is I think right. I think you keep mentioning the Constitution, but I don't think we live under a limited constitutional federal Republican form of government anymore. Uh, I think what you were saying is really right. That the federal, the limited federalist constitutional republic sought to balance in some way freedom and equality and security. And we have really shifted to privilege over both freedom and inequality, maybe security. Security has become the dominant goal of modern governance. Because if you give people freedom and authority and you trust them, they may make mistakes. The basic governing philosophy is we won't trust anyone. And that strikes me as one that Hannah Arendt called, you know, the rule of nobody, which she thinks can be quite tyrannical. And that does strike me that this is increasingly our governing philosophy. Yeah. Let's talk about trust for a second. Um, it's really interesting, and you're right that this whole system has been built out of distrust. But I argue that the correct system is not one that requires trusting a particular person. You know, I don't trust very many people whom I don't know. It requires trusting a system. You know, I don't trust this particular judge or that particular teacher or that particular anyone if I don't know them. But I do trust a framework 
in which there are principles that person has to adhere to, and there are accountability, clear lines of authority and accountability and checks and balances that can safeguard against bad decisions. And that's the way law is supposed to be structured. So law is not supposed to be an instruction manual. It's not supposed to replace freedom. It's supposed to be a framework for freedom. So law is like, um, it's like a corral. It's like the fence on a corral. And law is a negative concept. And generally, it's telling you things you cannot do. And, and these things are like you can't pollute, you can't discriminate, you can't cheat, you can't commit a crime, whatever. And by having those, those boundaries of law, they enhance our freedom within that corral so that we're not scared that we're polluting, drinking polluted water or about to be cheated, that people are going to abide by their contracts generally, that sort of thing. So you can have the same framework for the people who are enforcing the law the same way we have it now. The prosecutors use their judgment, but they can't just come out and indict you because you looked at them the wrong way. The same thing with police. And if they do that, then they'll be held accountable. And that is not a perfect system, but it generally works, not because we trust each and every person, but because we trust the rightness of the framework and the coherence of the lines of authority. Again, Arendt talked about this and why it's so important to our freedom to have these authority mechanisms that can act on right and wrong. I mean, at one point she said something like, the simultaneous decline of both authority and freedom in our society is no coincidence. If you take away the authority of the uh, teacher to maintain order in the classroom, pretty soon the kids aren't free to learn. So I just, I, I, I just wonder which you say people trust the system. It seems to me we're living through a time in which, and it's maybe started in the 60s, but distrust of the system is at an all-time high. Right. Um, it, what yeah. system is it that people trust? Yeah, exactly. Well, and guess what? People are not stupid. The system right now is designed to fail. <laughs> Everything fails. Look at COVID-19, you know, and, and by the way, how are we recovering from COVID-19? We're throwing the rule books to the winds. Not one thing the hospitals are doing is allowed under the rules, you know, not setting up temporary hospitals, not doing telemedicine, not letting doctors from other states come in, you know, it literally, they've thrown away the rule books. Well, that tells you something too, right? Why do those rules exist in the first place? <laughs> so the um, <laughs> so the distrust is completely warranted, but I argue it's not because people are lousy. I don't think we're stupider or act in more bad faith than our predecessors did. I think it's because the system is lousy. So I know you're you're an activist. You have an advocacy campaign called Campaign for Common Sense. You have a number of principles, but if you were to name one or two common sense changes that we, maybe within the context of COVID-19 and, and the crisis we're in now, how would you imagine a common sense response to this? And how can we think about changing our idea of, of government? Yeah, I, really important. 
people have to be free to take responsibility to achieve a goal. They have to be able to, today it's like we've cut off people's hands. People have to be free to take a problem and solve, and other people have to be free to judge how they do. You know, we keep talking, we've talked today about the freedom to act, which has been diminished by these, you know, by red tape and such. Another thing that we've lost is the freedom to hold people accountable. Well, how do you prove that this person is a bad teacher? Well, everybody kind of knows it, you know, that kids fall asleep. But how do you prove it? Is she really so much worse than every other teacher? Well, we think so. Well, how do you prove it? Well, the result of that, of having to prove who's any good and who's not, means that there's virtually no accountability. But of course, the other side of that is, if you don't have to prove it, all sorts of prejudices against race, religion, sex, weight, opinion, all come into the picture. Well, first of all, I'm unaware of any, at any point in our country, other than with racism, which you can have laws against, unaware of any period in which there was this rash of getting rid of good teachers or good anything. But in any event, you don't have to trust that decision. You can have a check and balance. So I proposed to the head of the teachers union, why don't we have a parent teacher committee in each school that has the power to veto any termination decision? Everybody know who the good people are and who isn't. So you can put a check and balance to protect against what I would view as the occasional unfairness, but you know, just to make people feel better that the decisions aren't going to be arbitrary. But the thing that you can't do, which is demonstrated now for decades, is you can't require effectively a legal trial at law to prove almost anything about the quality. How do you prove who tries hard? How do you prove who's a good writer or a good thinker or a good anything? You know, you judge it. A a free society is supposed to be molecules bouncing around within the boundaries of law uh, and not getting along with people. I don't know about you, but I've worked with people who I just didn't get along with. And I don't think it was their fault necessarily. We just had different ways of going. I once got fired from a job I'd really invested years into because I was determined to have outside activities that they thought were inconsistent with the firm. Now, I did a really great job at that firm, I think, but that wasn't part of their culture. And it was disruptive of the culture to have me out making headlines with my outside activities. So I got fired. So that was, you know, that was good for them. It's probably good for me. It's certainly good for me for lots of reasons, but... We can protect against unfairness with checks and balances. What you can't do is prevent humans from using their judgment without ultimately creating the kind of dysfunctional, (laughs) distrustful, ineffective, inefficient, and with COVID-19, tragically inept system that we have governing our country today. I think that's, I think that's well put. In some way, you maybe underestimate the feelings of unfairness and the way we can't protect against unfairness. I mean, just to use your example of teachers, I mean, I could imagine in different parts of this country, let's take 
New York City on one side or Birmingham, Alabama, maybe on the other, not only will supervisors potentially have biased views, but so will the parent committees. Now, one answer to that, and I think it's, it's a fair answer to some degree, although it goes against many in the elite world, is it's all right for local prejudices to inform these decisions, both on the left and the right, in different places. That's part of plurality and it's part of uh, living in a pluralistic, multicultural, multi-ethnic, multiracial society. But there's many people who think that those kind of unfairnesses are illegitimate, they're outmoded, they're wrong, and they shouldn't be allowed either on the left or the right. Right. And so social norms change and, and they should change. And it always involves tension. But there will always be people who want more that are inconsistent with social norms, prevailing social norms. And if you let them go too far, what you get is the election of Donald Trump, where people feel they're being bullied by what Hannah Arendt would say, the experts in Washington, to do things to tell them who gets to go to what bathroom or whatever, you know, when they can't make those decisions themselves in rural North Carolina. The Catholic Church uh, has a doctrine that's pretty well accepted in theory in many governing uh, bodies called subsidiarity, where you push responsibility down to the lowest possible level. It doesn't mean you let people do whatever they want. It means that you, you make the choices. So there's some kinds of things you just won't tolerate. You will not tolerate racial discrimination, for one. But aside from those things you just don't tolerate, you let people in the local community make local choices about how they deliver social services or how they run their schools. And as long as they meet some modicum of acceptable quality, then, then what you'll get is, is a sense of ownership in those communities and, and hopefully pride and more energy and more initiative and all kinds of good things while protecting not against every unfairness, but against the worst things that we fear. Yeah, I mean, just to, just to say the obvious elephant in the room here, we all know what local control meant for the Catholic priesthood in the last 50 or 60 years, at least in the United States, and what that allowed, was allowed to cover up. Yes, that's right. Although that could have happened in any, could have happened in any institution. So bad things happen. They often become institutionalized or covered up. That's not the only one we can talk about in our history. We, you know, our treatment of women yeah. is equally shocking, in my view, for, for millennia. Um, yes. And so, so, so that's why norms change, people should be held accountable and all of that. And you have to be vigilant, not just accept what anybody does. But you have to give people ownership or at least a high degree of ownership of their choices so that they aren't alienated, so that they feel like they're part of the society and can be helpful. And, and while there is badness in human nature, I think there's more goodness. And we've created a system that isn't just experts from a distance telling us what to do, but even worse than that, disembodied rule books and procedures that prevent us from doing things. And, you know, the, the Czech president, Václav Havel, once said that the difference between the Soviet system and a free country 
was that in Soviet system, you weren't allowed to do anything until you first got approval. And that's kind of happened in our country now. You know, our desire to avoid mistakes has given us some of the worst aspects of central planning, even though we were motivated in all the right ways. We just wanted to make sure things worked, you know, didn't make mistakes. But we, we kind of, by cutting off our heads, you know, not letting people think for themselves and do for themselves, you know, we got this profoundly alienated and ineffective system that resulted in the election of Donald Trump. And in my view, I think it's important, and that's what, that's what our new campaign coming up for, it's about to raise the profile of system overhaul based on re-empowering humans, including accountability, so that, so that it's okay for Democrats to talk about it. Because two-thirds of Americans hate Washington, and they need, they need a governing vision that, that give them hope. And right now, the only vision they have is to just get rid of government, conservative vision. And what we're trying to do is offer up a let's make government more effective by letting humans try to make sense of it. It's really wonderful and refreshing to hear somebody offer a, an analysis and theory and even principles of reform for government based on faith in human goodness, which is, I think, a big part of what lies behind your, your arguments. So um, I want to thank you for talking with us today and, and wish you great luck. It's great being with you, Roger. And it's great to talk about these from a philosophical standpoint, you know, the role of authority, the role of human agency and, and Arendt's thinking in this is just so important and so prescient. Well, it's wonderful. Thank you so much, Philip. I, I hope you're safe and you and your family remain safe during the coronavirus and hope to see you soon. Hope to see you soon. Thanks a lot. We hope you have enjoyed this conversation with Philip K. Howard. If you enjoyed listening to this edition of the Amor Mundi podcast, please visit us online at hac.bard.edu and click subscribe to find podcasts, original writing, videos, and more all delivered twice a week to your inbox. It's bold and provocative thinking in the spirit of Hannah Arendt, and it's free. To learn how to become a member of the Hannah Arendt Center and support our work, just click on Join HAC.